0: Brought to you by CGTN Europe.
1: Hello, I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. In this week's episode, we'll be trying to answer some of your questions about the rollout of the various COVID-19 vaccines. I put comments from our listeners to Dr Jerome Kim. He's the Director General of the International Vaccine Institute, and began by asking him about the large numbers of organizations that appear to be involved in the vaccination process. The World Health Organization, COVAX, CEPI, etc., and whether it could be better if there was just one organization in charge.
2: One of the unique features of the COVAX facility is that each organization that is in a leadership role is doing what it does best. So for instance, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, is responsible for vaccine development and manufacturing. GAVI, Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, also um, the Vaccine Alliance, uh, is responsible for the purchasing of vaccines, which is something it does extremely well. And of course, WHO is a normative organization. It's an international organization. It sets policy and, and helps to direct policy. So each organization has a specific role and responsibility under this. Uh, would it be different if if COVAX were a freestanding facility with a, an independent directorate? Yes, but it wouldn't be able to leverage the abilities of the three partners that are currently in the leadership role. 189 countries have signed up for these vaccines. Two billion doses should be delivered by the end of 2021. This is a remarkable achievement. And I think that the organizers of the achievement should be congratulated on the one hand and on the other hand, encouraged to deliver on the promises of COVAX.
1: Well, I have to say, I agree completely with both of those uh, thoughts, uh, Dr. Kim. Um, We also are hearing a lot about new variants. And our first question from the audience is about exactly that.
0: G'day, Mm. I'm Scott in Australia. And I'm wondering, do the existing vaccines work against the new strains of coronavirus?
2: So far, the answer appears to be yes. A qualified yes. The vaccine induced immune responses don't work as well on the new variants as they did on the old ones but we actually do not only have theoretical you know test tube evidence uh, that the vaccine should protect but actually the data from from novavax and johnson and johnson which were reported this week suggest that their vaccines continued to protect even in south africa where one of the newly emerging variants seems to be dominating the infection so for now Uh, They appear to be protecting. They don't do it as well as they do for the original set. And we're really going to have to keep a good eye on this. How do we decrease the number of variants? We're going to have to make sure that as many people get vaccinated as quickly as possible. So we need to control uh, the epidemics that are occurring in countries around the world. But we also have to encourage people to continue to use masks, distancing, hygiene, avoiding crowds, because we need to really control this. And and the best approach right now is going to be a combination of distance, masks and, and avoiding crowds, as well as vaccination.
1: That's really interesting, but I'm gonna butt in here because Uh, This next question is particularly relevant to me. I am having my first vaccine today and the vaccination is going to be the Pfizer jab. But what happens about the second jab? Suppose I get the Oxford AstraZeneca
2: jab. Does that matter? So I can give you the scientific question. The scientific question, the answer to that question is the vaccines were tested in a way that would only allow us to give vaccine A with vaccine A and vaccine B with vaccine B. Can we mix them? Probably. Will they work? Possibly. Do we know that, does the data support that? We don't have any data to date on whether that actually works. And when you're doing vaccine studies, when you're recommending vaccines, you always try to stick to the vaccines that were tested. In that case, it would be the Pfizer vaccine with a Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine with a Moderna vaccine. Could it work in theory? Yes. Do you want to take that chance if possible, we would like to avoid it. And actually, that's what most of the guidances say. You know, we understand that there could be accidents, there could be uh, problems. The other thing that we know is that, you know, a single dose of vaccine actually does probably work. We don't know for how long, but looking at the data, you know, 10 days after the first vaccination, we start to see a drop off in infection. So again, there's a lot that we don't understand. The vaccine dosing needs to be optimized. Could we give a half dose that works as well as a full dose or might it work better as it did with AstraZeneca? These optimization questions are things that still need to be answered. So for now, I think that most guidances say try to match the vaccines. If you're in a situation where you absolutely cannot, then it might be acceptable to use a different one. But really, the data are only for vaccine A with vaccine A, vaccine B with vaccine B.
1: So if I understand you correctly, a second vaccination isn't absolutely necessary?
2: Uh, no, not exactly. What it, what it means is that um, the first dose of vaccine generates some protective um, immune response, that is, um, some level of proteins induced by vaccination that bind to and inactivate the virus. That's very important. Right. We always give the second dose because what we do know is that usually that first dose, the protective responses will decrease with time. And sometimes fairly quickly, sometimes less rapidly. So, we need the second dose in order to boost up those uh, protective responses, to give the immune system a reminder of what it's supposed to be doing. Right. And we find that that second dose is often very effective. And also, one of the other things is when we're thinking about optimizing, you know, these doses were typically given a month apart. If you start to space out the dose, there is evidence now from AstraZeneca and others that as you space out the dose, the protective responses get better. And that's actually really important and really needs to be documented scientifically. You know, it's, it's one thing to you know do something based on, on what we think, what, um, what experts think. It's a completely different thing to be able to say to a patient or to a volunteer, the data show that the two vaccines given together are better than one vaccine, or that the two vaccines give you a much higher protective response that will last for a longer period of time. We really need to lead with the science in order to, de- to increase acceptance of, of vaccines around the world.
1: A question now from Mo Yazdiar, who tweeted us with the question, can vaccinated people still spread COVID? And I suppose he wants to know if they still have to wear masks and so on once they've been vaccinated.
2: Yes, yeah, so, and, and I think the, the answer to that is pretty unanimous. Vaccination is very important. Until we reach uh, enough, um, a high enough level of, of herd protection, we're going to need to keep the masks on. We're going to need to continue to use distancing and we're going to need to continue uh, to avoid crowds. At some point, maybe this year in the higher income countries, we will, we will be at that level where governments can start to loosen some of the restrictions that were put on, on uh, individuals. But until that time, we really do need to protect ourselves using a mask and also very importantly to protect others. You know, almost all of the vaccines, so seven out of the eight vaccines that have shown efficacy so far, that is protection, um, were really designed to look at does the vaccine protect against disease? The vaccines in general have not been tested to show that they protect against infection or transmission. And taking off your mask means that if you get infected, you probably aren't going to progress to uh, COVID disease or severe disease, thankfully. But you could still transmit the virus to others.
1: A question now from Natasha on Facebook. And it's a pretty straightforward question. Natasha wants to know, will we be allowed to choose which vaccine we get?
2: (laughs) Sometime later this year, there will be a time when there will be enough vaccine. Uh, and, And, you know, then, Uh, Recommendations will need to be made about which vaccine to use in which population. So will pregnant women get um, one type of vaccine and and other people get another? And again, we don't know yet. Um, The availability of vaccines that decrease infection versus those that don't could also be very important. Vaccines that prevent transmission. So again, these are data that need to be generated. Right now, the most important thing is to take safe and efficacious vaccines and vaccinate as many people as possible.
1: We've had a number of questions about the anti-vaccine movement. Dr. Kim, what do you make of this one?
2: Hi, I'm Kai Miller in Singapore. And my question is, a lot of people may not want a vaccine. Will that be an issue for the rest of us? Definitely. The more people who accept vaccination, the sooner we will we will all be protected. So I think, you know, and WHO has some very interesting guidance on this. First, lead with the science. Second, make vaccines easy to get. And don't complicate the systems for saying, okay, you know, uh, those people who are 64 years and nine months or older, no, you have to make it simple. Make it accessible, make it enable people, make it easy for people to get the vaccine. The second part is provide positive socialization around the vaccine. You know, we're doing this together. We are going to beat this if we do this together, if we cooperate, if we all get vaccinated, as many people vaccinated as possible, continue to use your mask. We need to create um, a positive social vibe around this. You know, in, in Indonesia, they, they're vaccinating influencers because they want people to know that these vaccines are important, they're safe, they're efficacious. And if we want to go back to going to the pub or, having, or visiting our parents in nursing homes, we're going to need to have protection against COVID-19. And the final thing is motivation. How do we get people who are just you know, at home and they don't know and, and you know, they may not want to sign up online, how do we get them out of their chairs? Well, governments need to figure out ways to communicate and motivate uh, people because really this is something that really is going to require all of us, our participation and our engagement in committing ourselves to ending this pandemic. Should therefore vaccines be made compulsory? a very difficult question. Um, And it's easier to answer if you take a step back and you think, okay, why are we doing this? Well, you know, in the end, it's the use of hospitalization and the number of deaths and the impact of COVID-19 on economies, not only the economy of individual countries, but on the world economy. Now there's a very interesting study done by the National Board of Economic Review recently. And what it said was, if we concentrate just on vaccinating ourselves, The global economy, and high-income countries in particular, will still be impacted by four to five trillion dollars if we don't vaccinate other countries as well. It just gets to the idea that this is a global pandemic. It's affecting wealthy people and poor people, wealthy countries and poor countries. We all have to be a part of the solution. And you know, again, it's going to be difficult. Countries are going to need to come up with creative ways to, to encourage enough people to be vaccinated. When we reach a certain level, I mean, and that may be 70% or 80% of the population being either vaccinated or naturally infected, or both, um, then everyone will benefit. At some point, we will start to see herd protection so that the people who are vaccinated are protecting people who are not vaccinated. But to the extent possible, governments need to encourage everybody. Eight billion people on this planet, to get vaccinated.
1: In the Northern hemisphere, spring is around the corner. A lot of people are thinking about their summer, they're thinking about travel. Now, we began this interview talking about the different organizations uh, involved in the rollout of vaccinations and the vaccine. Which countries, which organizations are keeping track of who's been vaccinated and who can travel to where?
2: It's going to be really critical. If we want to start traveling again, if we want business to resume again, that we have some way of being able to prove, country to country, that a person has been vaccinated. You know, are we going to resort to the yellow uh, WHO vaccination cards? Or are we going to have some form of a vaccination certificate that you could put on your, on your mobile phone and that will prove to a country uh, that a person has been vaccinated? Those are going to be very critical questions. Otherwise, we're going to resume travel and people are still going to be in quarantine or still going to have extensive testing uh, performed when they get to the country in question. So if we really are going to have a system that will enable us to resume a lot of the important travel that is related to business or um, economic uh, activities, then we are going to have to have an international system that will allow us to to be able to say with certainty and with confidence that person A or person B has received all the doses of COVID-19 vaccines.
1: Now to a question I think millions of people are asking around the world, including Nick on Facebook, who asks, "I haven't seen some of my family for months. I have yet to be vaccinated, but my elderly parents have been. Can I go and see them?"
2: It will depend on the uh, the rules in the countries that are um, that, that where people happen to live. Yes. So medically, if you're wearing a mask, if they continue to wear masks, you do not have you know physical contact with them. Um, you know, things could be, might be acceptable. Should they double mask possibly? What is the the nature of the epidemic in the region? Are the variants circulating? Because again, the variants may be more transmissible and also more deadly. So there are still a lot of questions that need to be answered and and really governments are best positioned to evaluate the pandemic, the epidemic within their own borders. Um, Because each country is different. You know korea at this point doesn't have a lot of circulation of the of the variants that are circulating in the united kingdom or in south africa but it could be that you know if an explosive outbreak of the those variants occurs and um and the government is very concerned then they may put additional restrictions in place so again you know it's been div- a difficult year i i have to say i haven't seen my parents in in over a year also and it's going to be really important that when we do that we absolutely are careful that they're going to be safe. It would be horrible for them to have survived through a year of pandemic and then to be infected and, and have an unfortunate consequence.
1: That indeed would be horrible. And the last thing we would want is for families to get infected now. And Mark on Facebook is asking, how will we know when our immunity runs out and if we'll need to be vaccinated again?
2: A, a great question. And so I'm going to get a little technical, but it's it's actually really important concept. In, in,
1: in very so, simple layman's terms, if you will, Dr. Kim.
2: Yes. So when you um, give these vaccines in, in one of these big trials, in one of the big phase three trials, what you do is you draw blood after a person has been vaccinated and you take that blood and you analyze it. And what you may be able to find is a single lab test. We call it an immune correlative protection, but it's a lab test that appears to be related to protection. Once I have that lab test, it becomes very valuable because I can look in, in your blood after six months or 12 months. And if that lab test it turns to zero or becomes undetectable, then I worry that you might not be protected. It's also a great lab test because, you know, these trials that we did, these phase three trials involved 200,000 people around the world some people getting uh, a saltwater injection, some people getting the uh, actual vaccine. We can actually make the trials much smaller. So a trial isn't gonna be 60,000 people, it could be a thousand people. So smaller and faster. And it'll answer a very specific question. It'll allow us to potentially go to half doses much more quickly or spread the doses out a little more, um, more easily. Because now we can actually do trials that look at a lab marker rather than at COVID disease in people. And that's going to be really important because then it'll tell us, for instance, when we need to boost you or if, in fact, we should worry that people uh, might be susceptible to infection. So the lab test is going to be very important. We think that there could be uh, information on lab tests later this month or next month, uh, so by March of 2021. And that could be very important because it will really make our job as vaccine developers easy, easier. And finally... Are you seeing light
1: at the end of the tunnel?
2: Hmm. A vaccine solution is an important solution. It really gives us our first really good weapon in this, in the, an active weapon in the fight against COVID. Until then, you know we were using distancing and masks, and and we all know how effective that's been in in, in many countries of the world. A vaccine is different, but a vaccine, remember, is is only a weapon, and to really win a war against covid we're going to need an army to wield that weapon and those are the people the healthcare providers who would be giving those jabs to 8 billion people around the world and we really do need a strategy we need priorities we need to be able to say wear your masks continue to distance until you know this time and then we can start easing off on restrictions but really it's not going to be a simple thing and and i I use this all the time i i think uh, Winston Churchill said this, right? This is not the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. We now have a weapon. We have to be sure that we can make it in significant quantity at very high quality, and then we have to give it to 8 billion people. And that is a huge task.
1: Dr Jerome Kim, thank you so much for joining us here on the agenda. Thank you, Stephen. The question of who should get the vaccine first is one which many countries are finding Tough to answer. Many have started by vaccinating the elderly and the most vulnerable first. But is that the quickest way of controlling the spread of the virus? Is there a single one-size-fits-all approach? Joining me now is Dr Jane Williams. Uh, Dr Williams is a researcher and medical ethicist at the University of Sydney Centre for Values, Ethics and the Law. Um, Dr Williams, who should be at the front of the queue?
0: You have to decide what's important you know, and that could be minimising deaths. It could be minimising the spread of infection. Uh, It could be minimising social disruption or shoring up your health system. Um, All of those things are obviously crucially important, but they all involve vaccinating different groups or prioritising different groups when you've got a scarce vaccine. So there are some really difficult questions uh, that need to be answered before you can make those decisions about who gets it first.
1: Lots of difficult questions which I hope I'll ask you and I hope you you would answer them Um, because, I mean, one argument goes that health workers are at the um, front of this uh, vaccination programme. It makes sense, doesn't it, for health workers to be vaccinated first?
0: Yeah, absolutely it does. It makes sense uh, because they are at risk of, becoming ill themselves. They're at risk of spreading illness. Uh, And also, they've been working incredibly hard, uh, depending where they are, but under really difficult circumstances. Um, And I think there's a a sort of measure of reciprocity um, that's involved as well. We want healthcare workers to show up to work and work as hard as they can under these horrible, horrible circumstances they're working under. And I think... We owe them something in return for that.
1: For governments, this is the toughest question of all. Some governments say, OK, it's the elderly must come first. Certainly the UK government, uh, the different categories, uh, the over 70s, 80s, 90s, most uh, at risk. Other governments have decided, OK, the, economies, uh, the, the economy of this country is so badly affected, we need to vaccinate the workforce. What kind of ethical decision-making comes into play there?
0: It's very common uh, when you're talking about public health ethics, certainly, to think about what's going to benefit the greatest number of people. In a non-COVID situation, it would probably involve vaccinating in such a way that you knew that you were going to reduce the spread of infection. And so the, the kinds of decisions that we make around vaccination more broadly and that we're used to making around vaccination about protecting everybody and protecting the largest number of people might not be the same calculus when it comes to COVID. So you mentioned the UK government um, vaccinating the elderly. That is uh, in order to minimise the number of COVID deaths, you know, and that's a very reasonable thing to do, of course, but... Um, there's no correct answer, and I can't. <laughs> I can't give you an answer. I'm sorry. It but is
1: almost unanswerable, isn't it? Uh, uh, it, it really is, right? Um, but I was I, hoping I you so. would be able to answer it. <laughs> but which governments around the world do you think have got it right so far?
0: I think the New Zealand government did an amazing job. Uh, the Australian government has done very well, also. It's been at some cost, you know. We we uh, The national borders are closed. A lot of the state borders have been closed on and off. Um, The hotel quarantine system is very tough, but it's very effective. Uh, We've done an amazing job here with contact tracing, especially in New South Wales, where I'm based. Uh, So, really, I I, I mean, I'm very grateful (laughs) at the moment to be in the situation that we're in.
1: We are seeing in Europe and the UK uh, something which is being dubbed vaccine wars breaking out. Uh, a a general unfairness about the distribution of vaccines. I mean, we're supposed to be living in a time of globalisation. That's gone away, hasn't it?
0: completely agree with you. I think that's something that we've seen in the last 12 months has been very much every person for themselves or every country for themselves, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, There have been some really great attempts to try and um, hold that at bay, the the COVAX... um, uh, agreement, if you like, uh, is supposed to try to make um, equitable vaccine distribution, which will really help all of us. I hope very much that that's going to work, uh, but there, does, there doesn't seem to be much sharing, um, <laughs> shall we say. What, and, of course, not every country has the same capacity to access vaccine. Uh,
1: you, you talk about Australia and New Zealand successfully flattening the curve. Do they now have a responsibility to help other less developed countries with their vaccination programmes?
0: Yeah, I believe we do, certainly. Uh, And as far as I know, Australia's uh, certainly made a commitment to do that uh, with neighbours in the Pacific Islands to help them get protected. Because if we don't, I mean, I, I don't know when they will have the capacity to get vaccine
1: dr jane williams many thanks to you for joining us here on the agenda
0: thanks very much for having me
1: that brings us to the end of another edition of the agenda podcast next week we'll be looking at the world of the entrepreneur what drives them how do they get started and how do you become one remember you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes stitcher and spotify you can also find us on cgtn europe facebook Twitter, Instagram and YouTube, and we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review. Until next week, goodbye. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth?
0: Will man or machine be in charge?
1: Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list and always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us.
2: The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve?
0: Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions.
1: There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and
0: military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.